than to spend a thousand days anywhere else. We acknowledge this morning that it is your presence, it is your goodness, it is the, the Spirit of God around us that is the greatest blessing you could ever lavish on us. And to spend eternity with you is a gift beyond compare. And we bless you for that this morning. We thank you, God, that you are here, that you have presence yourself amongst us, and that we as your children enjoy the promise of eternal life with you. And we just pray that as we begin to look at your word together this morning, that you would open our hearts to receive it, and that your word would come alive and bear the fruit that you intended it to bear. We ask this in your wonderful name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. It is wonderful to be here, and I look forward this morning to sharing with you. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. Um, I want to ask, have you, ever, have you ever avoided the truth to, to not really, to get out of going to something that you didn't really want to go to? Anyone maybe ever done that? Maybe, maybe you've said something you didn't really believe because you, you wanted to save someone else's feelings and you don't want them to be hurt when they asked you a question. You know, do I look good in these jeans is a, a great example. All right? Maybe, maybe this is a little bit worse. Have you ever said something about someone that wasn't entirely true? It was kind of mostly true, but maybe you just tweaked it a little bit. Have you ever failed to do something that you'd promised to do, or, or you did something that you shouldn't have done, and then you either didn't tell the person you were supposed to tell, or someone asked you about it, and you try to cover it up afterwards and, and pretend like it never happens? See, today we're going to be, we're going to be talking about living truthfully. This is, this is the section that we're going to begin to cover as we continue our series in A New Way to Live and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I wanted to begin this morning showing you a video clip, and I, and I had to make sure that it was, it was going to fly. So I, I sent the link to Shelly, and I said, Shells, um, just, just tell me, is this going to land in the 8 o'clock service? Are we, are, we going to, are we going to enjoy it together? Because it's from a series called The Big Bang Theory. Anyone watch The Big Bang Theory? There are like three or four of you. Okay, excellent. It's a really funny sitcom show, and um, I, I hope you're going to enjoy, enjoy this little clip. It's about four or five minutes, and, uh, and then I'm going to come back afterwards, and, uh, and we're, going to, we're going to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about living truthfully together. So, Elaine, if you could uh, show that for us, that'd be great. You'll never guess what just happened. Oh, I, I give up. <laughs> I don't guess. As a scientist, I reach conclusions based on observation and experimentation. Although, as I'm saying this, it occurs to me, you may have been employing a rhetorical device. Well, the girl they picked to play Mimi, she dropped out and they asked me to replace her. Well, congratulations. What a lucky break. It's not a big deal. Just a one-night showcase, but they invite a lot of casting people and agents, so you never know. I think I know. No, you don't. <laughs> he doesn't. It's this Friday at 8. Do you guys want to come? No. <laughs> Because uh, Friday, we are attending a symposium on molecular positronium. I think that's a week from Tuesday at 6. No, it's this Friday at 8. Oh, too bad. Well, I got to get to rehearsal. See you guys. See ya. Let's... Penny. 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 Good morning. Do you have any idea what time it is? 
Of course I do. My watch is linked to the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> it's accurate to one-tenth of a second. But as I'm saying this, it occurs to me that once again, your question may have been rhetorical. What do you want? Remember how Leonard told you we couldn't come to your performance because we were attending a symposium on molecular positronium? I remember symposium. Yes, well, he lied. Wait, what? He lied, and I'm feeling very uncomfortable about it. Well, imagine how I'm feeling. Hungry? <laughs> Tired? I'm sorry, this really isn't my strong suit. You told her I lied? Why would you tell her I lied? To help you. I'm sorry, I'm not seeing the help. She was going to see through your lie eventually, so I told her that you were lying to protect me. Oh, oh I'm getting a bad feeling. Hunger? Indigestion? I'm sorry, I'm really not very good at this. Anyway, Penny now believes that on Friday night, we're going to participate in my cousin Leopold's drug intervention. Your cousin Leopold. Yeah, who most people call Leo, but he also answers to Lee. Remember that, it's important. What's important? Details, Leonard. The success or failure of our deceitful enterprise turns on details. Do you have a cousin Leopold? No, I made him up. I think you'd call him Lee. I don't get it. I already told her a lie. Why replace it with a different lie? Well, first of all, your lie was laughably transparent, where mine is exquisitely convoluted. <laughs> While you were sleeping, I was weaving an ununravelable web. Ununravelable? Yes. If she Googles Leopold Houston, she'll find a Facebook page, an online blog depicting his descent into drug use, and a desperate yet hopeful listing on eHarmony.com. Okay, why would I go to a drug intervention for your cousin? Ah, because it's in Long Beach and I don't drive. We're going to Long Beach? No, of course not. There's no cousin Leo. There's no intervention. Focus, Leonard. Oh, come on. <laughs> We just leave the house on Friday night and we return in the wee hours, emotionally wrung out from the work of convincing Leo to go back into rehab. He goes back into rehab. Yes, but he can relapse if Penny ever invites us to hear her sing again. You still told her I lied. For a noble purpose, to spare me the social embarrassment of having a drug-addled first cousin, which I'm assuming is embarrassing, yes? supposed to remember all of this. Well, that's the best part. You don't have to. See, I told Penny that you would be embarrassed if you knew that she found out that you had lied. So she's agreed to operate as if the original lie is still in force. So she's expecting me to lie about going to a symposium in Pasadena when in actuality we're pretending to go to a drug intervention in Long Beach. Ununravelable. I hope you enjoyed that. It's quite, I find it quite amusing. And they're a very amusing group of uh, strange nerds um, in the show. But I, sh I showed you that clip for a reason, because you see, you see a collection of lies come out of one lie and begin to kind of build on each other. And I found, Elaine, if you could show the next slide, I found this diagram on the National Geographic online magazine website. It was a very helpful diagram. And essentially, this represents current scientific understanding. And it says the three main reasons that people lie is either to protect themselves, 
sort of 36% of the time, or to promote themselves 43% of the time, and then 11% of the time to impact other people. Those are the, those are the main reasons we lie. And I, and I wonder, as you watch that clip, how many of those do you think we could see in that clip? I, I, I managed to pick out about five. Right? So we have the first one there. Elena, that'd be great. Right? The first one is avoidance. They wanted to escape um, someone else. They wanted to get away from Penny. They didn't want to listen to her sing because what I cut out from the beginning is, is Penny's caterwauling that you couldn't hear. And uh, so they wanted to get away from that. So they tell a lie to, to protect themselves and to avoid going to, to the thing. The next, the next one that you can see as well, um, if you'll give that, Elaine, is, is there's, a, there's like a personal transgression. So now they're trying to cover up the original lie, concerned that that's not going to go very well. And so we have a new lie to cover the original lie. Then we get a third lie, if you could do that for us. Right? The, and this is, this is quite a big one. Um, I, I mean, I was having a conversation with some of my friends on the weekend, and you know, this is commonly seen as quite, quite fair, quite a reasonable reason if we're going to lie so that we don't hurt someone else's feelings, so we don't make someone feel bad, so we just shade the truth a little bit so that they'll feel a little bit better. So, so this is Sheldon trying to make Penny not feel bad, and Leonard trying to make Penny not feel bad, why they're not going to her singing. Right? Next one. I think this one, there was a bit of a twofold part here where they tell this lie both to, Sheldon tells one to make Leonard look better so that he looks like a nice guy that's helping out Sheldon, but he also does it to make himself look a little bit better because he's also going for a noble purpose to go and rescue his cousin in Long Beach, right? And then finally, I thought perhaps we could talk about pathological lying because Sheldon's a little bit crazy and uh, gets very really convoluted into his un unravelable web. All right, just uh, you can, there you go. Right. Just, a, just one illustration where you can see a collection of those different things coming up. And, and what was interesting as I began to do some reading around why people are lying and, and how, how honesty works, we all tend to value honesty. Honesty is like a, a human value that undergirds society. But, but whilst we hold that as true, we also tend to play a little bit fast and loose with the truth when it suits our purpose. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe in yourself, maybe in others. Right? Even 2,000 years ago, Jesus noticed that. He knew that that was a part of our human nature. And so in this next section on the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to address that idea of truthfulness. And uh, the section that we're in, in the Sermon on the Mount, is a section where Jesus looks at a collection of Old Testament laws and principles, and then he begins to redefine them for his disciples and explain them in light of their purpose. And uh, so last week, Howard spoke about the laws regarding divorce. And if you didn't, uh, if you weren't here for that last week, I can recommend you come through tonight. Um, it's quite a serious one. And, uh, and apparently, Howard did a really great job. So I'm really looking forward to hearing it tonight. Or you can catch it online as well. But uh, this morning, we're going to talk about taking oaths, right? And, and living truthfully. Taking an oath. This is the next thing that Jesus begins to speak about in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read that together in Matthew 5. From 33 to 37, Jesus says this. He says, Again, you have heard it said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need is to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from evil. 
These are the instructions that, that Jesus gives to his disciples around swearing an oath. And the thing is, swearing an oath is not exactly the most common practice today. We don't do that really all the time. There are a couple of examples that, that I remembered from shows and stuff that I've seen where you do see it happen. You might remember the justice system, particularly in America. I don't know if it's the same here, but they are required to put their hand on the Bible and swear, now, by the Bible, essentially, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, Right? And, uh, but but the, taking an oath was a way of guaranteeing the veracity of what you were saying or the truthfulness of what you were saying. It, it lent dependability to a particular pronouncement that you'd made, right? And, and you can see this in many places in the Old Testament. There's an instruction about how oaths are to be taken and understood. So I'm just going to show you just a couple of them. Deuteronomy 23, from 21 to 23, says this. It says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. A couple of things just to note here. This is a vow that's taken to God. It's a promise that you've made to the Lord, right? And, and what Moses writes here for the people is that when you make that promise and you declare it now unto God, I'm now God going to do this for you, if you break it, it's a sin. But if you didn't make that promise to the Lord, if you just kind of decided to do something, it wouldn't have been a sin. The fact that you've now made a vow out of it to God gives it more gives it a greater strength and has a high level of accountability. Right? Numbers 30 verses 1 and 2, very similar but changes it slightly. Moses said to the heads of the tribe of the people of Israel, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that has proceeded out of his mouth. Right, and this is very similar to the last one, but now it takes and says it's not just when you make a promise to God, but it's when you make a promise to yourself. It's like if we make a New Year's resolution. This year, I'm going to lose five kgs. Right? It's our favorite New Year's resolution. Numbers says if you make that vow to yourself, it becomes binding on you. It becomes significant, and it again carries that, that sinful connotation of breaking it that existed in, in Deuteronomy. It's also a little bit inferred in some of the, the Ten Commandments. In the third and the ninth commandments, you see in Exodus chapter 20, it says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, so if you're taking a vow in God's name and you're not doing it, there's a sense in which you're disrespecting God's name because you've taken it lightly. Right? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's just, a, again, an expression of that truthfulness. Perhaps one of the, the most tragic stories about a vow involves a chap called Jephthah. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Jephthah. He used to be one of the judges of Israel. And uh, he was asked by the people at the time, the Israelites at the time, to defend them against an Ammonite army that was amassed against them. And so he made a vow to God and he said, God, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, then the first thing that comes out of my home when I return, I will offer to you as a sacrifice. And so off he goes, and he battles against the Ammonites, and God gives him incredible victory over the Ammonites. And there's a lot of great rejoicing and excitement. And then he comes home in triumph and in victory. And what happens? His only daughter, his only child, walks out of his house to greet him. 
and he is forced, and you, if you read it through in Judges 11, you'll see that ultimately he offers his daughter as a sacrifice to God because he made a vow, because it was serious and it was, it was a promise that he couldn't break. And it's a terrible story. It's a tragic story of a vow that was taken lightly and he didn't think it through. And it ended up with tragic and terrible consequences. But when it came to the time of Jesus and as he was teaching, vows were being used in a slightly different context and they were being somewhat abused. And so you can see that a little bit in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus begins to speak to the Pharisees and he begins to condemn the Pharisees for some of the practices that they were teaching in the temple. And so they were saying this, this is Jesus um, speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, you blind guides, because you say that if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon the throne. (coughs) Excuse me. You can see in this discourse that what's been happening is the Pharisees have been teaching that the object of your vow dictated the, the level of truthfulness that it contained. Right? You, can, you can kind of picture how this was being abused. Two guys would, would have a bit of a dispute and they would come before the teachers of the law and you would say, you know, Reverend Pastor, um, my brother here, Nico and I, we entered into an agreement and he said, you know, by, by the altar in the temple, I promise that I will plow your field for you while you're away on holiday. And then I came back from holiday and my field wasn't plowed. And the Pharisee, well, I'm very sorry, but he only swore by the altar, not by the sacrifice on the altar. Actually, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's a bit of an unusual system because we wouldn't really do that. But you can kind of see how they were abusing this and, and really misdirecting the whole idea of what was going on here. That's the backdrop into which Jesus now begins to teach and speak those words that we read earlier in Matthew 5. And so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus redefines oaths for us. Here's the problem with the oath, with an oath, and this is why Jesus came and, and had to reset this practice. Elaine, if you could go to the next slide here. Because an, if an oath provided a means of increasing the truthfulness or the veracity of something that someone said, by definition it implied that your speech could contain two different levels of truth. Does that make sense? If I need to guarantee my speech with an oath, that means that When I give the oath, that's now very true. If I didn't give the oath, well, that's maybe probably true. There's a distinction in in the things that I've said. And Jesus says, that's that's not what it was meant to be about. Oaths existed in the Old Testament because of the sinfulness of human nature and our inherent deception. But, But Jesus continues the trend that he's been starting in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, where he takes an Old Testament standard and he says, actually, that standard is too low. And actually, we need to raise the bar on that standard. And so he says, guys, if you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to continue the work that I've been doing, then you need to live differently. Because you're now filled with the Spirit, and you're called by God, and you're empowered to live in a different way. 
And you need to live by a standard where there is no differentiation in the truthfulness of what you say. That's the standard. The oaths become unnecessary for us as Christians because all of our speech is to be true. That's really, that's what Jesus is saying. That's what this passage is all about. And, I, and I'm not going to spend any longer explaining that because that's, that's all it is, right? It, it's not trying to regulate different expressions that guarantee our speech. It's simply a call to say that one of the defining marks of being a Christian is that what we say is true. Jesus is basically telling us as a Christian that our word is our bond. If you promise to do something, you are required to do it because you have said it and your word is truth. We ought to be a people who mean what we say and say what we mean. That's who we're supposed to be as Christians. And I, and I said this before in my previous message when I, when I was speaking uh, in the series. When Jesus said these things, he didn't say them to create a new philosophical dialogue. He wasn't unaware of the impact that his words were going to have on the way in which people lived their lives. In fact, I think he spoke them because he was looking to very actively direct and guide how people were going to live and how he calls us to live today. Those words are still applicable to us because what Jesus was trying to do was shape behavior. He wasn't unaware of the awkward situations that result from people speaking in truth, but he was calling his people to be a people that spoke in truth. So as I bring the message to a close, what I want to do is just talk about, very briefly, what this still means for us today. What does it mean to be a people that live truthfully, that speak truthfully? And I've got seven kind of applications for us to just carry into our lives as we live this out. First one is this. If we're going to live truthfully, it means we need to live without duplicity. His call for us is that there should be no difference between who we really are and who others see us to be. We shouldn't be putting on a front or a mask or projecting an image of who we are when actually who we are is something else. This is the idea of integrity. Right? And again, you could just look at Jesus and ask yourself the question, do you think Jesus ever put on a front? Was he ever otherwise to people than who he was in reality? He was always who he was, even when that was inconvenient and uncomfortable. As Christians, we're not supposed to be keeping skeletons in the closet that we hope no one will ever see. That even when we sin and we do things that we genuinely regret, the call is for us to repent of those sins and to resolve those relational issues. Right? So that we're not living in shame. We're not living trying to hide something and hoping that no one will drag up something from the past that we've hoped was hidden. And we see this sadly a lot at the moment with some of the, the significant pastors' churches in the States where stuff has happened and it's been kept in the closet and it's been kept in the dark and it's come out at the end and it's destroyed a ministry that's existed for a long time. Living without duplicity is the first part of Jesus' call to live truthfully. It also means taking a moment to think before you speak because if what we say needs to be true, then we need to take a moment to, to consider what we're saying. Right, this is quite important. I want to tell you a story of how I, I got trapped in this totally unintentionally. <clears throat> but, um, I, was, I, used, I used to work in the office next to Sue at the front desk there, and uh, I got a phone call one day on my cell phone as I was in, in the office, and it was a friend of mine's mother. She phoned me up, and I, 
it was quite an unusual call. I didn't ex- don't generally get phoned by my friend's parents. And uh, anyway, we were sitting down, we're having a chat, and we're doing some small talk. And then she says to me, you know, Brad, I just wanted to ask you, what are you doing on the 16th of June? I can't remember the exact date, but she asked, what was I? And I said, well, hang on a second, let me just check my calendar. And I went and had a look, and I said, you know what, I've actually, I've actually got nothing on. She said, that's so wonderful, because my daughter's getting married, and I would really love for you to do the wedding. And I felt, I felt really trapped, like I didn't, and, and I said, you know what, yes, sure, I'll, I'll do the wedding. Um, I'd, I'd never done one before, but, you know, we can work it out. And um, it was my first wedding, right? I learned a lot of things, because I was told that both of the people getting married were Christians, and I, and I tried to meet with them a couple of times, and that was the front that was presented. The problem was there was some massive underlying issues in the relationship, and within a year, that relationship totally disintegrated, and they were divorced. And I was really, really, I was really sad that that had happened. And as a result of that, now if someone says, Brad, would you marry us? I say, hold on, before we say anything, well, I'd love a chance to meet with you, to chat with you, to get to know you a little bit. And if we're going to do this, then we're going to commit to a journey of doing some counseling together. Right? Because I've now learned to think before I speak and not just say yes and get myself into a situation that is really challenging. So we need, to, we need to give ourselves that space. Don't say yes. Give yourself the time to think and properly respond. When someone asks you something and you, you're maybe not entirely sure, you're not entirely comfortable, just say, you know what, can I have a moment to think about it, to pray about it, right? Don't be rushed into giving a judgment that you're unsure of or you don't believe. This is also really applicable in our relationships, right? Particularly, you know, when you, you've got those people that you love, but they also just kind of know how to push your buttons a little bit. And you can get a little bit frustrated. You know how dangerous words spoken in anger are? Such an unfortunate thing, right? Especially because often we don't mean those things, but we just respond out of an emotion. And again, let's take time to consider what we say before we speak. Remember that passage in James chapter 1, in verse 19. He says, dear brothers and sisters, please take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Proverbs 29.11 says, The fool vents all of his feelings, but the wise person keeps them to himself. He takes a moment to pause, to consider, to reflect, and then to respond. It's especially important in emotionally charged situations. Right, that's the second thing. Third thing, if we're going to live truthfully, it means we need to be prepared for a backlash. We need to be prepared for a backlash because, unfortunately, We live in a culture and a generation where honesty has the potential to engender hurt and offense. It has the the potential to be offensive to people. And so we, we often will sugarcoat the truth or avoid saying what we really feel because we're worried about offending someone or hurting their feelings. And has anyone else ever done that? Right? We do that quite often. It's also one of the main reasons that we, we, uh, we give for you know, not sharing the gospel with people because we, we wouldn't want to offend them, right? And uh, we wouldn't want them to think us as judgmental people. What if they judge me and they don't want to be friends with me anymore? <clears throat> also, speaking the truth can differentiate us from other people and can isolate us because if someone knows what you really believe or where you really stand and it's fundamentally different to them, that can be quite a difficult relational thing to get through. Some of you may not know this, but I was a river guide for a couple of years of my life. It was a lot of fun, and uh, we had some good times out in the Orange River. But one one river trip we were on, and uh, we were hanging out together, and the guides were chatting as we were making camp and getting things ready for our clients. 
And uh, for some reason, as, as things happen, um, the conversation turned towards sex at the time. And um, I, I, at that point, wasn't married, and I was still a virgin. And so as the conversation continued, I, I shared that in the space. It was appropriate for whatever reason at the time. I have never been so ridiculed in my life. The whole group of guys, just at, they fell on the floor laughing, and I was suddenly totally different to everyone else who was in that space because I'd been willing to share the truth. And it's often easier for us to, to share a small lie or to avoid the truth and dodge the question rather than say what we actually believe or what we actually think or where we actually stand. The thing is, that's not who Jesus calls us to be. He calls us to have the courage to say what we really think, to live in a community where we have robust relationships, where we don't get offended the first time someone says something that we don't necessarily agree with. That's our call, to live as Christians. Fourthly, if we're going to live truthfully, it means we need to understand our own vulnerability. And this kind of connects to the previous point. Right? Here's the question, who are we really looking to protect when we spin the truth a little bit and and try and avoid saying what we really believe or feel. Are we really concerned about someone else's feelings? Maybe we are. Or are we concerned about our own feelings? Are we worried that if we do that, it's going to make the situation uncomfortable and we don't really like uncomfortable situations? Are we concerned that if we do that, it's going to lead to a confrontation and really we don't, we don't like confrontations and so we want to stay away from that and we want to give ourselves a bit of space from that? If we're going to live truthfully, we need to learn to make ourselves vulnerable and to deal with our own vulnerabilities. And rather to put ourselves in the situations that we tend to avoid. Connected with that as well is the fifth thing. If we're going to live truthfully, it means we need to be prepared to receive truth from others as well. What they believe to be true. We need to allow them to say that. Right? Because if we, we're going to talk about vulnerability, we're not... We don't only need to face our own insecurities when we initiate a conversation, but we need, to, we need to be aware of our insecurities when we're receiving communication from other people as well. We need to be prepared to have others say to us something that we might not necessarily agree with. And we need to process that information without getting defensive. Now, those of you who have been married for a period of time, hopefully will have learned this by now. Right? Most of you have much more experience in that than I do. Right? But defensiveness is the biggest barrier to truthfulness in a relationship. Defensiveness shuts down truth like rain in Cape Town shuts down the traffic. Right? The moment we get defensive, we stop communicating properly. And it becomes a battle. If we're going to live truthfully, we need to curtail our urge to defend and allow ourselves just to listen and to process before we speak. I don't know how many of you have been in a conversation and someone is speaking, but you're not actually listening to what they're saying because you kind of heard where they're kind of going and you're already preparing your response in your mind for what you're going to say when they stop and give you a moment. It's not very helpful if we're really going to communicate well. <clears throat> right, sixthly and penultimately, living truthfully means taking our commitment seriously. This is a big one for our younger generation at the moment. Because right, sticking it out is no longer par for the course. And commitment is something that it's become a bit of a lightly traded commodity, fluctuating from whatever season we're in at the moment to the next. If we're going to live truthfully, we have to be a people that honor our commitment and are prepared to hold the course. If our word is our bond, if we say we're going to be there, we need to be there. 
If we volunteer to serve somewhere, we need to honor that commitment out to the end. And that remains true even when things become inconvenient or they become uncomfortable or even challenging and difficult. Our call is to honor our commitments. And I, I promise this isn't me airing a pastoral grievance, right? That's not what I'm here to do. This is, I just think this is one of those things that's a ramification of what Jesus is saying. As Christians, we should be the most reliable people. Your boss should love you because he knows or she knows that when they give you something to do and you say, I'm going to get it done, it gets done. Because your word is your bond. That's who you are. Just like God honors his promises to us, so we need to honor every, our promises to others. Finally, right, when it comes to living truthfully, the way we say something matters just as much, if not more, than what we actually say. And I, think, and I wanted to say this last because I think this is really important and feeds into all of the other things that we've spoken about. Right? The Apostle John describes Jesus when he came. He speaks about who Jesus is, and he says that Jesus came. He was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And that's exactly the balance that we need to carry. Because if we're all truth and no grace, we become very judgmental, legalistic people that sit on our podium and judge everyone else underneath us. But if we're all grace and we're no truth, we become worthless people that just coddle people and pander to their own needs, feelings, and interests. And we never get to share truth with people. The call to truthful living, and, and this is really significant, is not an excuse to throw emotional hand grenades at people with the defense of, well, I just had to speak the truth. You know, they just needed to know it, so I just lobbed these like painful words at them because that's what I thought was true. That's not the call. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 1 to 3, and he says this. He says, I want you to always be humble and gentle. I want you to be patient with each other and make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. That's our call. All of our speech should be able to be described in that way because our goal is to build one another up, not to tear people down. Even when we disagree with one another or we've been hurt by one another, the way in which we speak is still a paramount concern and we should never use the content of what we're saying as an excuse for the way in which we've said it. It's really important that we speak with grace and gentleness. That's all I wanted to say, right? I don't, I don't think we need to try and unpack this anymore. We can live as a people who are tr- live in truth, that we do what we say and we say what we mean. Our word is our bond, and we can be people that live like that. We can do it because of the Spirit that is in us, and He empowers us to be able to do that. So let's take a moment. Let's take some time to pray together, and then we're going to bring our service to a close, and we're going to have tea and coffee available outside. Jesus, we, we bless you because you were the one who came full of grace and truth. Because you always spoke the truth. That you never showed a side of yourself that wasn't who you really were. But you were always totally honest. Thank you that you have called us to that standard to be like you. <clears throat> 